Hey everyone, welcome to episode 302 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week, I had the utmost pleasure of hosting two fabulous United Kingdom photographers, Joe Cornish and Alex Nail. Alex asked me if he could interview Joe for our Artists Asking Artists series, and I was beyond thrilled at the suggestion. Joe is an inspiration to so many landscape photographers, so it was a true pleasure hearing him answer our tough questions. We covered a huge array of subjects this week, and I think there's something for everyone, so stay tuned. Before we dive in, I wanted to thank those of you that answered my calls for support of the podcast on Patreon. We operate under the value for value model here on the podcast, and I believe that if someone creates something that you find value in, you should reciprocate in a show of value as well. As long as it's more than $0, I think it's totally fair. We had a fantastic show of support in December, including the following incredible people. Rena Goodfriend-Leave, Jesper Hiltz, Colm Williamson, Jamie Campos, Andrew Russell, Frank Lynn Pierce, Steve Rosendahl, Jeff Zias, Michael Tomcall, Connie Krause, Kieran Metcalf, Lucas Rodriguez, Nancy Kurakawa, and John Zumpano. Thank you all so very much. I am so grateful for your support. If you too have been meaning to support the show, just hit pause and go to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen and show us how much you value the show. Thank you to those of you that already have. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Joe Cornish and Alex Nail. All right. I am so happy to have Alex Nail and Joe Cornish here for our fifth iteration of the Artists Asking Artists series of the podcast. And I just wanted to thank you both for, for joining me today. It's a pleasure. No problem. Great. And uh, let's just get some introductions out of the way. Um, Alex, you're no stranger to the podcast, but maybe you can go first. Uh, yeah, so I call myself a mountain photographer, a bit of a made up title. Um, I do a lot of shooting in Scotland, particularly Fisherfield at the moment, uh, and in the Drakensberg in Iceland. Um, and yeah, I, d- I don't suppose I have any more anything more to add than that, uh, other than my interest in this podcast is, is in inter- interviewing Joe, who's been uh, an inspiration to me pretty much since I started photography. Uh, and so that's how we've ended up here. Yeah, and it's probably worth noting that every time I talk to photographers from the United Kingdom, Joe is one of the first people that they say is one of their idols. So no pressure. Well, <laughs> Alex, thank you. Thank you. And, and Matt, thank you. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I definitely don't feel worthy of any of those. Uh, I, I, um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, um, first of all, uh, yeah, I'm a, a working photographer of uh, 40 plus years. Um, and in terms of landscape, I'd probably describe myself as a general practitioner. So I love doing everything. Um, and, and I don't feel restriction. I love doing mountains, but I also enjoy being by the sea and um, doing intimate landscapes. I even do urban landscapes as well. So, um, yeah, just uh, just a mad, keen photographer, a, a guy who loves taking pictures, nothing more than that, really. Love it, love it. Well, we have prepared a whole litany of 
really difficult questions for you, Joe. <laughs> so we're just going to launch right into it, and I'm going to have Alex kick us off. Yeah, so a bit of a bit of a big one to start off because I've always uh, regarded your photography as as relatively complex, Joe. Um, and so I'm I'm wondering uh, what balance you think there is, what role uh, simplicity, complexity, and perfection play. Obviously, kind of contrasting ideas um, in landscape photography, and and what's most important to you. Thanks a lot. I think I could probably fill an hour and a half answering this question, so I'll do my best not to. Um, so I think this is a really fascinating question for, for a number of reasons. So some of them are personal, some are philosophical, some are obviously aesthetic. Um, I was thinking about it earlier today, and cynically, I might say the reason I love making complex pictures is they're a lot more forgiving. Um, it's easier to 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 kind of... Uh, have a um, a kind of untidy approach and uh, and and it allows you to be freer uh, visually. I mean, I, I personally um, think that, that that the world is complex, that nature is especially complex. In fact, it's often very chaotic. And in a sense, the 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 aesthetic challenge that all landscape photographers face is trying to answer the the question of how much are we recording the world and how much are we interpreting it? Um, because I think if you literally just recorded as a geographer, uh, you, you you would end up with a lot of very untidy and quote unquote messy uh, photographs and, and they might not be very aesthetically pleasing. So I'm very conscious of the fact that it's vital to make pictures that can engage the viewer um, and most importantly, engage you, the photographer. Uh, so you feel excited about what you're doing. Uh, philosophically, I think that drives the process underneath. It may be unseen, but the, for me, because of my, you know, if you look at, at nature and how we've not even touched the surface of how complicated everything works together, everything's interconnected on this planet and in the universe, and to and to oversim and to simplify, while that appears to be an aesthetic virtue, I think it, some, it sometimes it can deny the reality. Of how the world really is, so for me the and do you, do you think it's possible to carry through that complexity um, in your images to to suggest those complex connections? I have to believe that. <laughs> if it isn't, then my entire life is a complete failure as a photographer. Um, <laughs> so uh, I I do think so. I mean, I suppose one thing I would say is I think you use the word connection, Alex, but connect is the vital kind of glue um literally metaphorically for me in in photography in the way i compose things i do try to build connections often there can be connections between very disparate elements within the scene um but fundamentally what what i think of of my composition is is an attempt and it is only an attempt to solve the infinite jigsaw problem jigsaw puzzle of form and space and it is very much about form. If you don't, if you don't reveal something about form um, in a in an innovative or personal way, then essentially photography is not really making any progress. So, I think Robert Adams it was who actually um, made that point in one of his essays that form is fundamental, uh, no, fundamental part of the of the photographer's personal signature. So, I'm. I see each photograph as an abstraction. It can be analyzed as such. 
um, you know, something that where the relationships within have to work together. And because I believe in complexity, I'm also fighting often between these uh, apparently conflicting um, issues. Um, I'm so so many, almost so most of my pictures, I suppose, um, you know, are work this way. And, and since you did very kindly send me this question a couple of weeks ago, I've been thinking about it as I've been going along, and and it, it's really brought it home to me actually how um, how that how meaningful it is for me to have to try to present the world as both comprehensible but also mysterious and and complex. Um, and that complexity is is part of it. I, I mean, if I mean, what, what 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 are the interesting things I'll just add about your your style, Joe? Since we're talking about complexity, is um, I was chatting with Andrew Mann, who's a, a mutual uh, friend of ours, um, and uh, he mentioned that uh, what you tend to do, and I think a few others have said this before, is add an extra layer, where others are trying to simplify. You'll take a step back and bring in another element. Um, which I think is a very unusual approach, uh, particularly in modern landscape photography. Yeah, that may be true. I mean, in a funny kind of way, I mean, Matt may be able to uh, um, identify with with this because I'm sure you're familiar with your uh, your predecessors in the States. But David Munch would be a, a, one of my early exemplars in color photography, and he used quite complex compositions frequently. Uh, which yeah, you, you in a very simplistic way we could say foreground middle ground background but there's a there's a very strong attempt in david's best pictures to uh, connect elements together and i think that was a form of inspiration i don't think i perhaps articulated it that, as that at the time but you know you're a sponge as a photographer aren't you? you absorb influences from all over and ultimately what you want to do is develop your own voice um and and so you know, I, I've borrowed loads of ideas from David. I've borrowed from Peter Dombrovskis, a great Tasmanian photographer, um, borrowed from Ansel, probably. Um, but at the same time, I was also influenced by Edward Weston, who is the, the classic example of somebody who's able to simplify elements and and distill them into something, you know, by the simplicity, so made them even more mysterious than they, they actually were. I'm not quite sure how he did that, but... Um, so yeah, I'm I'm still still finding my way, uh, and but for for me that at the moment at least I will say that the idea that the world is complex is is fundamental to how I want to see the world, and therefore I'm happy to embrace complexity. You've you've talked a lot about kind of conceptual side of things, but I'm curious if do you have a concrete example of like in the field, what are some ways in which elements can work together? Yeah, very simply. Like, I, I mean, let's take a, a simple example. If if you had a, uh, if you were beside a lake and you were looking across to a distant mountain, relatively distant, um, and the mountain has a certain shape depending on the geology of the, of the area. Um, and I'm typically finding myself drawn to elements in the foreground that have some relationship. They may have only a visual relationship so on the face of it let's say it's uh, it's reeds uh and and one of them is curved um in a way that echoes the shape of, of the mountain now it might be on the same parallel or it might be the inverse but either way those that you're uh, you can set up a relationship by having those elements be the same proportion in the frame and that immediately creates um, a rhythm or a rhyme, a visual rhyme. Uh, and then perhaps there's other elements 
might be rocks, it might be uh, an area of moss or um, perhaps in the immediate foreground or on a rock in the background or, you know, that has a textural relationship that where, again, there's a link. It might be a colour link. It might be, um, it might be a total contrast. But all the time you're looking at, uh, I'm looking at relationships, trying to find something that will make the connection. And there's another philosophical, and this is, sorry, to go back to conceptual element here, but is I really, really want to emphasise that everything matters. You know, every tiny thing in this world matters. Um, and we neglect it at our peril. And that, and so honouring um, these small, apparently insignificant details, such as reeds or, um, I don't know, spider's webs, uh, um, raindrops, anything that has a delicacy and a, a kind of minimal element that has, to me, evokes a feeling of beauty and connection, a fundamental to... Um, to building a language of respect and love for the beauty of the world, and those those elements are um, are often neglected, and are certainly neglected by the general public, who tend to just tread all over them, uh, literally and metaphorically. Um, <laughs> and I, so, I guess you could say, you know, it could be a it, it could be a, a kind of protest to, against that, or it could be in a a genuine attempt to try to encourage others to to see that that beauty as well. But I think. For me, they are every bit as important in their own way as the mountain. Well, that was like a three-minute masterclass on composition. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I guess it's you've sort of segued into this and we've moved back um, onto the main theme. But I'm, I'm interested um, as to what, what you think it, of the recent trend in photography to move into more intimate styles and maybe more simplistic, more graphic styles um, and, and what, importance you place in the kind of grand scenic photography that i associate you with yeah well that, that's a that's a also a fascinating question um and i i kind of i sense that there must be a personal uh, interest in that because you love mountains um and photograph them brilliantly by the way it's a hugely biased <laughs> <laughs> well fair enough um but my uh my feeling is that it all matters so i, I mean i don't dissociate the intimate landscape or indeed the fact that it that appears to be there may appear to be a trend towards photographing intimate landscapes I, I think by the way culturally the reason for that is that as more and more people take an interest in landscape photography um, so inevitably they realize that if they want to make a personal statement it's much harder to do that with a mighty subject and and to quote the classic example you try standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and making a really personal image of it. You can record its beauty, and, and if you're lucky with the light, you can do something highly spectacular because it is such a spectacular place, but you can't, you can't certainly can't improve it, and it's very difficult to make a personal picture of it because it already has so much cultural baggage and currency within our world um, because it's a global icon of landscape. If you take uh, um, a little detail from a backwash of a river or in the edge of a cave or a, um, in an undercliff or anything like that where there's something kind of wonderful going on in nature it's much easier to make a kind of personal um, interpretation of it because you don't you're not carrying any baggage with it and I think that's one of the reasons that that people who are kind of very more creatively focused will inevitably find themselves embracing 
such subject matter. Um, but I personally don't see why you can't use those same skills together and, and to try to find ways of keeping that, of preserving that connection with, with the bigger space, the, the vista, as it's sometimes slightly pejoratively called, um, because I believe that all human beings are still inspired by space. You know, the idea of the adventure and the, the feeling of, of the, the great possibility of the landscape uh, and, and what, how it inspires our imagination. I, I certainly think for young people that's really important. That was fantastic. I mean, that's probably the best explanation of that particular conundrum that I've heard anyone give. We, we debate that particular subject quite a bit in this field. Along those same lines, Joe, you know, we've seen a dramatic shift in landscape photography from kind of the more traditional style that you helped to develop into a more kind of fantastical, heavily edited style. And I'm curious for you, how has that shift left you feeling? And as one of the quote unquote grandfathers of the, of the former, more classical style. Let's let's use the term OG. Original G. Yeah, I like <laughs> I like com- it. Just to confuse Joe. <laughs> yeah. Now you've lost me. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept grandfather. I've been called that a few times. So. Um, <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah, I I have I, I did I did look by the way. At, I noticed that DP Review had a had a review of International Landscape Photographer of the Year recently. So I did scroll through those winning pictures and. Um, and they really kind of summarized what you're saying very well, Matt, I think, um, you know, really amazing pictures without a doubt. Um, so here's my take on it for what it's worth. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm very liberal as far as believing I'm tolerant. I, I think people should do what they want to do and, and what they love to do. Um, of course, these amazing pictures, uh, that, that we see, which, you we know as as experienced um folk in uh, of the landscape you you can't actually see that in reality that that's the that's the difficulty that i have with it now does that mean people shouldn't do it no uh, no i think it's fine um but i personally have a problem trying to make well i've done it myself from time to time make a picture use maybe using a digital filter in order to create a um you know a bit more atmosphere or something like that and when i've overdone it and lost that feeling of authenticity or connection i've discovered for myself why i still like to shoot what i would regard as eyewitness photography and that is that to me the power of photography lies in its ability to for us to suspend our disbelief in other words, I mean, the fact is, when you look at a photo, it's a two-dimensional representation of the world. It's not the world. It's not reality. But it has got the ability to convince you that what you see in the photograph was something that you could have seen if you were there at the time, that you were, uh, if you'd stood with me, next to me, behind me, um, you know, and this applies to you guys as well, as photographers, um, any other uh, companion would have seen something very like that. I mean, clearly there will be subtle interpretations that we'd all make and the way we frame things and so forth. But the fact is that the 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 lens is able to render a good lens to render that scene with such a kind of fidelity that we feel connected to it. And it's that sense of connection that matters to me. And that loss of connection then means that the work represents something different. It's a fantasy 
a fantasy landscape, which is fine. After all, it's what painters have done a lot of the time. But it's just not what I want to do because to me it isn't. It isn't. Um, it's it's actually losing a part of photography's greatest power, which is a power to convince and to connect. And I I would submit further that uh, that is what differentiates photography as an art form is that it is connected to an experience or to a moment. And I think when we start to kind of steer on a different path, it no longer is the same art form. That's for me, though. <laughs> yeah, no. I know I, Alex I, could probably I, talk about I, this for like 17 hours. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we've done, we've done it too much. That's the thing, isn't, isn't it, Matt? It's, uh, it's old hat now. We've ranted too long on this subject, but it's interesting to hear, uh, hear Joe's take it on it. Um, he's much more much more patient in fact he has a bit of a reputation in the uh, in the uk community for being tolerant of uh, pretty much every approach which is uh, is good to see that's maybe uh, uh, the, the the wisdom that you develop over time and will <laughs> will probably mellow out too i don't know it may be because i don't um, do social so, media <laughs> it may yeah maybe that too yeah that's very uh, anger inducing well, i'd say i'd say you've um, mellowed so, out a little over time alex i've tried <laughs> deliberate deliberate attempt um yeah, so, so Joe, you actually um, touched on some uh, artistic ideas around composition, echoing shapes in, in the landscape and so on. And I, I thought it'd be interesting to try and have you unpick what creativity is in a, a photographic context, what is innate and what is really just a learnt design pattern. Because I tend to, I'm an engineer, so I tend to see my own thought processes quite matter-of-factly. I don't think here's this brilliant artist and I'm going to solve this amazing problem creatively because I'm brilliant that's not the way I view it at all I, I draw on past experiences and some of it comes naturally but I still think of that as from past experience and maybe design patterns that I've learned from yourself and others um, so yeah I'd, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on that yeah, it's such an interesting question, though, and it's an incredibly complicated one. Um, I, I genuinely think that all all human beings have a creative talent or, or ability of some kind. It's just that they're that at, at school uh, through our formal education processes, much of which is good, but an awful lot of our creativity tends to be um, crushed out of us, squeezed out of us as we go through, uh, especially teenage years, where or expected to conform and to learn rational thinking and so on, all of which is, you know, a lot of which is good, but it's not often not well balanced. If you have a particularly strong scientific uh, education, that, that does prepare you well for, for clearly for a scientific career, a scientific approach. But I have, I've, I mean, I wasn't clever enough to be good at science. And that's how I was, that's what I was told literally at school, you know, you know you're not clever Cornish. You better do art. So it was really. Like, you've never, you've never come across as a clever. No, no. Well, I mean, what can I say? I, all I, I would do is point to my son or my daughter, for that matter. Um, so obviously, it jumped a generation. Um, I just feel that uh, that that photography is a is the ultimate blend of science and art, and I, I'm not the first person to say that clearly. Um, and I think that that we have. We as artists have so much to learn from science and also vice versa. So, the, and the way of thinking is really, really so similar. And I, I find it really sad. And I know I've slightly skewed the question here because I'm sort of answering my own question. But uh, the, the, there's a schism between 
the scientific approach, which on the face of it appears to be endless, endless kind of, um, you know, you have a theory, you um, you explore the evidence, uh, you digest it, you experiment, you set up an experiment, which then other people have to repeat, and eventually you can prove the theory. Um, whereas, as certainly the way I was taught art, it was like very... It, it was very free um, and and very very experimental. I, I did art, you know, went to art college, did a fine art degree, and uh, I think it's almost as if the teachers were determined to prove that they were all kind of arty geniuses. You know, with it was it wasn't method based in any way. But my own personal view, I mean, I've I've got lots of lots of things to be grateful for for that art education for. But I genuinely believe if you look at the lives of artists who've been successful, the careers of artists who've been successful, they cover the gamut of approaches from the most in intuitive to the most method driven. Um, and actually, ultimately, a balance of, of analytical process where you, you, you learn from your mistakes and constantly repeat, try things until it works, and using your instincts and eventually learning to trust your instincts is the, the way ultimately that leads you to be a, a happy artist or one who's finds some degree of fulfillment whatever whether you you know you might disagree with thinking of yourself as an artist most photographers are quite uncomfortable with it especially in the UK um, but I personally think it's a slightly absurd um, anxiety because it doesn't really matter what what you think of yourself as but the process is a creative one uh, to a large extent. What I do think, though, is that the craft side of it, the, the ability to um, to develop a confidence in your technical approach gives you the freedom to be intuitive. So, I mean, in my book, First Light, which is now over 20 years old, I think I uh, use the Zen maxim, which is to... Um, it's something like ma master technique, then put yourself at the mercy of inspiration, and and I I still think there's a lot in that in in that um, if you if you know your camera, your tripod, and anything else you use really really well, you can just allow yourself to respond to what you're seeing um, and to find solutions relatively quickly. And sometimes, as we know, that's pretty important in landscape photography. So, I. Yeah, I have to say, Joe, that's actually more or less how I ended up in photography in many ways, because I always painted and, and drew when I was younger. And I was more of a technician than a you know prodigy or, or anything. But I, I loved art. Um, but I was often frustrated by my own technical inadequacies, you know, mixing watercolours or whatever it was. And, you know, you make one error and then it's sort of just spoilt because you didn't mean to do that. The intent wasn't there. Um, so photography was a real freedom for me because I had the confidence, at least as, as a technical person, that I would be able to master the technique very quickly. And that gave me an enormous creative freedom. You know, the, the only thing that I could get wrong really was the create, right or wrong was the creativity. So that, that was kind of how I ended up in photography. That's really interesting. And actually, um, I would say that I think painting, and just take watercolour, for example, it's incredibly difficult and it's really technical. It requires a lot of practice and a lot of understanding of how the physical properties of the materials actually work together. And having, I've got quite a few friends who are painters. I watched, watched them at work and, and they, they're obviously highly experienced. But 
that you know the way that they use the materials is extremely technically accurate precise considered even though the marks they may be making appear sometimes quite random you know there's a lot of craft um, in artistic work and I, I don't think we should ever underestimate that I mean I, I for me the the joy of photography was partly was I, I, I felt myself quite a realist type artist and I was in a in a college full of abstractors as it were um, and yet abstraction is something I greatly believe in as a as a way of thinking at any rate um, but but also because it's like drawing but it's really fast and that's great. I love the speed of it and the way you can respond to what you see. And also the fact that for me, light was something that always inspired me when I was drawing and painting. So being able to depict light was really, is really difficult with a, a pencil or, or a, any kind of artistic instrument. And the, the, uh, the camera is so good at doing that so quickly. So you actually um, uh, earlier you talked about um, making mistakes as as part of the artistic process and developing your own vision, and um, I mean I've, I mentioned this to you before, but we, we went for a hike in May of last year out into Fisherfield, and I've uh, guided about twenty or so photographers there now, um, and I have never seen any of them work anything like as hard as you did when we got to these locations. Um, and th there's a couple of things I, I noticed. Um, one, you were working in light, which I thought wasn't very interesting. So you were obviously drawing on, on something else. Um, two, you were uh, shooting compositions, which I didn't think were very good, um, which, you know, I, I think is, is possibly part of the process. Um, because, of course, you then churn out some of my favourite compositions of all time. <laughs> um, and, and, and finally, you, you just seem just completely dogged in, in that approach. Um, you know, you, I, I think uh, when we were on, on one of these hills, you were you're shooting for something like three hours, more or less, solidly, just wandering around in a boulder field and grasses and... Mm just exploring all of the opportunities so I, I just wondered if you could talk about that whole process your enthusiasm and what what kind of direction that that gives you gosh um yeah I mean you could say I'm not a very good photographer so I have to experiment a lot um it, you know I I, th I think I'd like to think it's because I still have that childlike sense of wonder and just love being outside with my camera and I don't I, I, I do think I'm very very lucky I feel very energized by by nature and by being outside and especially somewhere you know where we went it was amazing I mean it wasn't it wasn't good lighting conditions I told, I'd be the first to uh, to agree with that but I at the same time it was very easy conditions to work in it was mild it wasn't windy it was it was pleasant and uh, I like soft light and you know, I think that's a big difference um, and, and that's something we'll perhaps come back to later. But uh, I'm always interested in, in the possibility, can I make a picture work in, in soft light? Because for me, it's not, it, it isn't a matter of using intense drama. Those are great when those moments happen. Um, but I have found from, I mean, if you take my book, Scotland's Mountains, which I know you know, Alex, um, an awful lot of the pictures in there were made in very flat, overcast conditions or in rain uh, or fog and and for me they they have a, an intensity and uh, 
connection that is part of who I am. So I'd say that it's also part of me. I feel too that I I think that so Peter Dombrovskis is a really big inspiration for me. Um, and if you know Peter's work, you'll know that he worked in soft light a lot. Um, and and there's a um, there's a, a, a subtle beauty in his pictures. It's very the opposite of bombastic or pompous. pompous. It's it, it's just very lyrical and um, and it's it's very it's almost as if you're there, but you you know you don't detect the photographer. And in a way, that's my ideal photograph. Is one where the photographer's influence is has disappeared. It's it's as if you're looking through. A window onto beauty, um, but you're not you. You don't find yourself thinking about how clever the photographer is for you know being there at such and such a moment. Or um, it's the opposite of ego, really. I still and it's, it's you're more likely to be able to make pictures like that. I think in in very um, in light that that doesn't uh, force itself on on the viewer. There's a famous, uh, oh, you know Paul Wakefield, I'm not sure if you've met him, but I know Paul quite well. And he has a great quote, um, which is very specific to him, I should say, not not to me, but I, I it's one I remember um, and I still think of often. He says, he says, strong light breaks my composition. And that's a really, that's a really clever and interesting statement because you connect strong with, with break. Um, and so it's easy to remember it. And and when I look at Paul's work, I, I know what he means. Not everybody likes his work by any means, but it's I love it. I have, I find it very inspiring. And he generally works in very very overcast and very gloomy and often stormy conditions, which which have a, a kind of mythic epic quality because often the landscapes themselves are very very grand in, in his in his images. But the light. Is not grand, if that makes sense. Hmm. I don't know if that helps, but um, but to me, the the I want to be open to the possibilities of soft light. So, oh, you know, rather like um, what did um, Eugene Smith said, um, you know, uh, daylight, artificial light. I'll use any light that's going, and I'm a bit the same, really. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad light. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that I think is very different in in our approaches is that I tend to look around a scene and assess where the possibility lies and then look at that possibility and then try to decide whether it's worthwhile photographing and then move on. Whereas you seem to find things interesting and that was enough to, to form the basis of an attempt at a photograph. And then maybe you're more willing to fail. I'm. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure what the, what that difference is. It's just you. You were taking a lot more compositions and trying a lot yeah, more and ideas. Yeah, I, I am willing to fail, and because I, I see that as part of the creative process. And I mean, it, especially someone new. Um, if if I were to, I mean, this morning I was I was out with my camera um, on our, our hills at the back and. I know them really, really well. So uh, there, the, the way I, I work is I never want to repeat myself. Of course, you never repeat yourself because it, it's always different light and so on. I'll always try and come up with a new idea, find a new way of, of translating what I'm looking at. Um, and the beauty of that is that you're familiar, so you know you have a, a kind of... You also, you, you've set yourself quite a high bar, perhaps, 
Whereas in Fisherfield, I was like, I was at ground zero in terms of where I was coming from. I hadn't been in there before. I had once, but with with some friends, it wasn't really a photo trip. So, um, and you know, we'd we packed in. I packed in the big camera, um, which I, I love using uh, for for deta- very detailed compositions. Uh, because that's what it's really good at. So, I was I was more than happy just to be there and to to try things. And um, I'm sorry if I held you up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely didn't. Yeah, Joe's um Joe's a very good hiker. I can I can tell everybody that, especially um, yeah, given you're you're sixty something, aren't you, aren't you, Joe? And uh, you're out hiking. Yeah, many people <laughs> younger than you, I'm sure. Um, you know, one of these one of these guys who annoyingly floats up the hills whilst the the rest of us battle up them. But uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> well, I'm still trying to trying to stay as able to do that as I want. I I, I was thinking about this earlier. You know, one thing I I definitely don't want to die with the tank half full. I want to be. It, it needs to be empty. I love it. So, I mean, actually, that's a really good segue in, into asking, you know, do you have any uh, short and, and medium term goals for, for your for your work? Are you still ambitious with what with what you're trying to achieve? Do you have projects on the horizon? Well, I, I had two huge projects last this year, actually. Um, so I'm kind of trying to empty my mind a little bit from from those um, so I can I can refocus perhaps on uh, I, I mean, I have, well, you and I have discussed a book idea, which I, I'd still like to do. Um, but I keep thinking, well, maybe it's a series of, of smaller books or something. Um, and you know, not really. I, I think at the moment, my motivation is still to just be out with my camera and to enjoy that as much as I can. And I know I don't do social media, so I don't really appear to be very sharing or community based. I just, but I just don't feel that that's me um, doing social media. I'm too, I'm not sure if it's because I'm too old or, or whether, um, I, you know, I, I want to help. Um, I really do, but I, uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm still not quite sure how we photographers can really do that. Um, and, uh, and, and so for now, perhaps the most important thing is to, to try to identify, you know, the beauty that, that there still is while we can. Maybe that's a, Good segue for one of my questions. Uh, from your perspective, can landscape photographers serve the global community beyond our own interests? And if so, what is our contribution? Yeah, um, it's. I think that you, we can definitely be. I think we can contribute, but um, it's it's extremely complex, and and it, I don't think it's about any individual. But of course, inevitably, you do end up. Uh, pointing out certain individuals, um, you know, yourselves included, and Matt, you know, you, the work that you've done with Nature First, and, which I think is great. Um, I'm not quite sure where, um, you know, how much progress that's made, but I just think the fact of any group of individuals getting together um, to identify these issues, bring it to the public domain, and, and to try um, to encourage other people to, up, you know, uphold the highest standards of behaviour when they're out in nature and and inspire others is is a very very positive thing to do. So that's a that's one thing. Um, you could point at at photographers who have been um, more in the realm of photojournalism uh, and and doing things like Garth Lens in Canada, 
with his uh, tar sands work, which has you know been incredibly dangerous for him um, and frightening and um, and and inspiring at the same time. You know to to study that work uh, or Edward Bertinsky, another Canadian who's um, you know his work has, has achieved wide worldwide public renown. Um, and it's very much, especially now, I'd say very protest-based. Um, and so these are more kind of classical journalistic functions for landscape photography. But clearly most of us, our landscape photography is a, a, is a form of retreat and joy and, um, and a way of connecting with nature, which is, I suppose, in a way, allows us to utilize skills that are very much those of our hunter-gathering ancestors in, in some ways. Um, and and I think that helps us. It helps us to feel connected with nature and, and to feel motivated to want to change, to change whether it's our own behaviour or those of our communities or those that we can influence if we can. Um, but it's all very, very difficult because the politics of it are so complicated. And, you know, what, what it would be really good is if we were able to contribute, which I know some of us already do, work, to environmental charities who are, are trying to make progress in these fields. Um, but even that is complicated because not all environmental charities are as good as they claim to be and so on. So, you know, um, yeah. yeah, we have to be, yeah. we have to be careful um, with those associations also. Um, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, if, if the landscape photography community was able, as, as you have really tried to pioneer, I think, Matt, you know, a code of behavior and and to and to have positive net influence on society if we could but you 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 very quickly get accused of preaching and and so on so you know it's a it's a tough one yeah that's that's the hardest part about it is you know you you end up getting people that don't appreciate it or they don't want to be told what they can and can't do which is not really the whole purpose of those types of initiatives. It's really just to start a conversation and get people to just be more mindful about their own behavior. That's really it. And yeah, I've, I've been on the receiving end of a lot of hateful statements from people in our community about, you know, like, oh, you're just trying to tell me what I can and can't do. And it's like, that's, you completely missed the point. But yeah, yeah it's hard. Yeah, it, it is hard. I think that especially online, that that's a, a risk, isn't it? Whereas, um, I guess, you know, for me, most of the uh, contact I have with other photographers is on workshops. And sometimes it's a completely new group. Um, you know, I do charitable workshops and so on. Sometimes it's people I know really well who keep coming back for more on tours and so on, which is lovely. And, and they develop a kind of shared, we, we develop as groups, a, a kind of shared ethos of things that we, we love to do and, and what we believe. And we get to know each other and know and share our, our kind of collective values that way i'm not saying that everybody thinks the same as me and i wouldn't want that but um i think all of that helps a little bit um and then and clearly when you're face to face people are much less likely to be hostile i think it's inevitable right that, you know because you have a personal connection there and you're much more likely to want to develop a, a you know hopefully um a conversation that has a good outcome whereas i don't know online it does feel like a bit of a war zone sometimes totally kind of along those same lines maybe this is a good segue for one of my other questions alex um 
Joe, you recently wrote just a wonderful article for On Landscape um, about the disappearing Arctic, through which you laid out your own personal internal struggles with climate change and travel. As we were talking before this podcast started, I just returned from a trip from Antarctica myself. It's very top of mind for me in terms of like what what is my carbon footprint and should I be taking more trips like that? And if so, like how do you reconcile that? I have a lot of cognitive dissonance going on for myself. So I'm curious, and from your perspective as photographers, how do we how do we reconcile this? Uh, yeah, uh, the answer is I just don't know, um, and, and I say that. I, I by the way, I at various times um, in the in the two thousands, I I tried to stop flying. This is before it was a thing. Um, I didn't stop completely, but I, I largely didn't. It's when I was doing the work mainly in Scotland, um, which Alex knows, and uh, and that. Yeah, I, I, and I'm really by the t- by about 2010. I, I thought I, I just denied myself tons of wonderful opportunities, and then I, I had an opportunity to go, to go to Antarctica, and I, I just felt like, well, you know, I've been wearing the hair shirt all this time, and hasn't really got me anywhere, and I haven't changed anything. Um, and Antarctica, for all sorts of reasons, the narrative of Shackleton and Scott and um, you know the, the kind of cultural figures in in the UK at any rate um, had had always have me very interested in investing there um, and and by the way I've been I've been in love with the idea of photographing icebergs since 1983 or something when I first saw Elliot Porter's pictures of icebergs in his book on Antarctica so um, anyway, I've been, I've been three times is the answer, but I'm not I'm not going to return now um, because I, I have accepted that I can't justify going again. Uh, three times is ought to be enough. I think for somebody like me, I can't really argue that what I do can change the world for the better as a result of going. And so having been uh, and I, I have a, a great personal feeling connection with Antarctica as a result of those trips and and an appreciation for the wonder that it is um, and a great strong desire to hope that it will remain you know as intact as possible for future not just for future generations but for the sake of the planet generally um, and and yeah I mean ultimately you know uh, it, it, it's one of a number of um, uh, of questions that we we have to ask ourselves so but I will also say that I've made a living out of traveling uh, to a large extent. That's where I've done most of my photography. When I was a young photographer, I was really more of a general travel photographer than a landscape photographer. Um, I was incredibly lucky to travel, went to wonderful countries, met loads of of people, learned kind of cultural differences. um, And hopefully as a human being, I've developed a bit more empathy and understanding than I would have done. And I, I still think that travel can be a very enriching experience especially for younger people and that it's important to travel so there are lower carbon footprint methods of traveling train obviously particularly um horseback bicycle um and you know in the, in the uk we we have the option of going to most of europe relatively easily on the train um you know and using using other methods but um I, I do just to give you an idea. So my son Sam, who Alex knows, um, did, did a um, 
uh, had an amazing experience in the Arctic a few years ago, and he he had to he had to get to Tromsø um, for the for the beginning of the voyage, and he went by train from from Oxford, which took three and a half days, <laughs> but. He decided that was the right thing to do rather than flying, which would have cost about a tenth as much. Um, but because he wanted to try to do the right thing. So, you know, I found that in itself was quite an inspiring thought. And all of his um, fellow students who were involved in that expedition did the same wherever they came from. Um, so uh, except those from the Far East, but anyway, all the European ones. So, um, you know, I think the younger generation of of young leaders and scientists are, are already very much trying to live how they believe. Um, it, in a way, it's um, it's really for my generation to feel thoroughly guilty <laughs> and, to, and to try to <laughs> try to do less. But I have one more thought, and and obviously having Alex there is quite good. Being an aircraft engineer, um, so air, you know, air travel is not going to go away. I don't think. I, I'm very conscious of the fact you can't really seriously expect us all to, us all to stop traveling. I think what we have to do is to face up to our carbon obligations. So personally, I would like to see frequent travel being taxed so that there is a, an association with frequent flying. Um, after all, it's it, it's those who can fly frequently can probably afford. Uh, to pay a tax that that would then should then be used maybe whether it's it's nationally or locally or, or collectively internationally as a way of um, providing mitigating technologies or developing air, tra air travel that is more um, environmentally acceptable and, and I've heard of numerous innovations that are coming and um, you know the potential for hydrogen if it was green hydrogen, obviously not blue hydrogen, um, as a um, as a fuel and so on. So the, the, there is potential for much, much lower, maybe not zero carbon footprint travel, but lower air uh, carbon footprint air travel in the future. And and I think we have to, we obviously have to be able to fund that. And uh, that funding is partly going to come from people still flying. Otherwise, what's the incentive? So that's the conundrum. Okay. And... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have moments of feeling very, very gloomy about it and, and other days when I feel much more hopeful. But uh, I think, you know, we we, yeah. we can't stop traveling completely. And by the way, I Matt, in your case, I completely relate to you wanting to go to Antarctica. I mean, who wouldn't? Who who loves nature? And did you get some good iceberg pictures? Amazing. <laughs> it's <laughs> just go. incredible. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's really unlike any other place on the planet. I mean, the wildlife opportunities are incredible as well. I mean, the wildlife's been so protected there, so they don't have any fear of humans. And they'll just walk right up to you. You know, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> it really, really is. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, if you could, yeah, you could so, uh, you could say to, to anybody who's a keen photographer that, you know, if, if you, if you could uh, guilt free go anywhere in the world, where would you go? Antarctica would definitely be in that top five or three or whatever. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I'm going to drag you both into photography again. I think because um, because I've got more questions to, for you, Jay. Because I I just know that having having spent some time talking to you, that you've just developed a lot of ideas over your career that that do take a lot of time to develop. Um, so I'm going to drag you back to talking about uh, about light, and I'm going to start by uh, quoting your your book. Um, 
first light because it, you've actually written the only line in photography that I've ever managed to memorize maybe because uh, <laughs> it, it makes a, a lot of sense to me or it certainly did it did at the time um, and it's the first line of first light which is first light everything else follows for light is the language of the landscape as well as its raw material um, so I, I'd be interested firstly to know whether you think that still applies um, and, and secondly, just whether you have any interesting ideas around lighting and lighting setups, um, little tidbits that people might be able to, to learn from. Well, to answer the first part first, um, it's, a, it, it's a good question because it's challenging for me because I, I, I do really believe in the idea of light as being primary. Uh, it, it is fundamental in, in photography. But I probably, my, my idea about what light is good light for photography as as we've sort of touched on earlier has changed quite a lot since um since i i wrote that book and i i guess if you would go through that book now you would find the majority of of images are quite while they're not necessarily hallelujah light if we can use that expression uh, a lot of them are quite dramatic um quite strong light uh, whereas Today, I, I generally work a lot more with softer light um, and have really embraced it much more. But still, fundamentally, the quality of the light really, really matters. You know, it is really, really fundamental. Um, I think there, there's to, to try to answer the second question is really difficult. Um, I, I, I think I have a, had, a, had a very interesting and fun experience of being out with Colin Pryor the other day um, with our cameras uh, a few days ago. And, and Colin's got very strong ideas about how the light needs to be for, for his type of landscape photography. Um, you know, in a way, he's your kind of predecessor in the mountains, Alex. So I think you'll be able to relate to what I'm talking about. And, and Colin, so I, I, what it made me realize, I don't want to talk uh, about Colin's approach because that's very much for him. But um, what it made me realize here in Colin was that my own approach is much more, I'll use the term liberal again. Um, so I, I kind of think, well, you know, any light. Um, but, I, but what you need to be able to do is understand when it will work. And if we take, go back to the Fisherfield experience that you and I had last year, a number of the pictures that I made, um, compositionally I thought were good, but didn't really work that well because the lighting didn't bring the landscape to life. And I probably had got so used to shooting in soft light in the last two or three years because I spent a lot of time in woodland. So in soft light, woodland is a good location, I would say, generally it's a very very high contrast location so the the very first probably the most important tip if i could call it that or guide guideline and it should only ever be that because you should always break rules in my view photographically um is that if the subject contrast is high then you're usually better off with lower contrast lighting and vice versa and that's that's still something I, I usually kind of use as a starting point when we have discussions about light on workshops. Of course, it doesn't always apply. And there's always um, there's always exceptions, especially when it comes to shooting into the light, for example. But, um, yeah, so soft light is great for woodland. So softer the light, the better, partly because woodland is incredibly 
A, it's very complex, and B, it's very high contrast. This is actually so exactly why I asked the question, because I, I think what you've just said is actually quite obvious to almost everybody listening, I would imagine. And yet having it clarified, distilled into an idea like that is, is somehow valuable to have that as, a, as, a, as an approach to tackle subjects, to select mm. subjects for various lighting. So that's really interesting. Well, ju just to put it into perspective, when we do workshops, if I, if I, when I'm on my own, more usually with David, for example, um, Ward, uh, we, we basically go to places that we would go on that day with our groups. So, and, the, and that's always based on the weather. Um, so let's say, you know, we know it's going to be a cloudy start today, maybe a bit foggy, um, no views to, to see. We go to the woods and then perhaps the forecast is suggesting it's going to clear out for the afternoon. And, and then we, we'd head on up to the moor, onto the uh, into the valley where we have views of the mountains, depending where we are. So, it's that's exactly what we would do if we were on our own with our cameras, and and that's what we would always try to do for our workshop groups because it, it, it you, that way you you're able to teach the language of light with um, you know with practical subject matter, as it were, and and usually it proves correct. I think the the one thing that's that perhaps I'd like to add um, to that is is the question of shooting into the light or with the light behind you or with the light to one side. You know, in a very crude sense, those are the kind of three obvious. Um, you know, it's what we we all have to do. You know, when we we point at uh, our cameras at something, where is the light? I mean, it, we we all think about. Do we think about it? We, it's so instinctive because we're we're so familiar with it. But if we are trying to be conscious about it, um, the way I I would describe it is that the sky is is your studio. So in terms of of the concept, it, I used I worked in a studio as an assistant, so I got very used to using the studio environment as a light source. And especially if you photograph cars, which are essentially a car shaped mirror where everything is reflected off the car's exterior and you have to manage the light in a way to make the car model itself into something that looks three-dimensional using light and shade um, so it's a great exercise in light and control of course we don't have those issues because generally not working with quite such reflective surfaces out in nature um, but nevertheless you can still see the sky as like the roof of the studio and the sun is your single light source. If you start thinking of it like that, you realize that if it's if the sky is blue and there's no clouds, light's gonna be very harsh. Why? Because it, there's relatively little reflected light from the blue sky. There is some blue, because if you look in the deep shadows, they're always incredibly blue on days like that. Fortunately, in the UK, we get very few days like that because um, they're the hardest, in my opinion, to photograph in the open landscape because of the harshness of the conditions. Very deep shadows, very little light in the shadows. Whereas when there's lots of clouds around, it fills in the shadows because it's both diffused and reflected. And so the clouds behave as diffusers and reflectors. And if the sun is somewhat behind clouds or completely behind clouds, then obviously everything is diffused. Uh, but you can still get direction sometimes when there's thin cloud. If it's very thick cloud, it becomes directionless. So all of these, these are ways of reading the light that helps you understand why does the landscape look the way that it does? 
The answer is because the Sky Studio is making it look that way. So modeling the way you, you look at a three-dimensional object. I mean, that classic um, example when you're in, you know, the art studio um, as an A-level or a, you know, GCSE student or something, you know, if you have, um, your art teacher might show you three different shaped objects, a triangle, a, a cube and, a, and a, um, a sphere, and you have a single light source and you can manipulate the, the light and watch the light change on those three objects and how they're modeled. That's essentially a very simplified version of what's happening in the landscape all the time, constantly. Even at night, in fact, <laughs> where you have obviously much more extreme kind of subtraction of light, but you still get little light sources and, and they're the ones that you know light up what we do see. Um, or sometimes moonlight, which can be very harsh for the Again, there's no reflected light, it's only the light of the moon. I had a trip uh, about three years ago, a fall color trip here in Colorado, where we literally had 12 straight days of no clouds, just blue skies. And, you know, I actually really value that experience because it forced me to try to get more creative and rely less upon the conditions. And I found myself photographing a lot more in, in blue hour and photographing a lot more in, in the shade and exactly. you know smaller subjects yeah. that didn't necessarily depend on the light necessarily. I'm curious for you when you have those days like that, what are some of the things that you do to still remain productive? Matt Joe also well, lives in the UK, so let's... Uh... <laughs> right, so it's very rare, but... <laughs> well, no, no it's, it's an interesting question, Matt, because I spent quite a lot of, of, um, of time in the States as well, lucky me, and, uh, you know, which is, is what, what, the most amazing country for photography. Um, and also, sometimes I've done four um, tours in Colorado, which is a fantastic state, so, you know, lucky you. Um, however, I guess my technique for dealing with blue skies has been mostly defined by being in Utah. And, and the great thing about Utah is all those canyons. So uh, the answer is duck into the canyon and, um, and hang out in there. Um, and then you get remarkable effects of reflected light. And it's basically right. about avoiding the direct sunlight a lot of the time. In the middle of the day, um, the deeper and steeper the canyon, the more powerful the effects of shadow can be uh, but yeah there's i, I mean I, I still for me the the narrows of the virgin river um is still one of the great landscape experiences of my life i've walked up it a couple of times three times i think now you, you've probably been up there hundreds of times or lots of photographers have but i i just find it utterly beguiling incredible place i've also been in many uh, smaller slot canyons um, and, you know, they all offer wonderful, extraordinary light when the light is rubbish, <laughs> you would say, out on the open plateau because the sun's high in the sky and there's no, no clouds to relieve its harshness. So, yes, um, occasionally I've actually used some of those techniques in the UK, in fact, by standing in the shadows and, um, and photographing the reflections of... Uh, sunlit cliffs and blue sky beyond and and what you can how you can they they create magic um in with with almost any kind of rock but especially say limestone which is relatively neutral um that's revealed in the intertidal zone that can be just fascinating there's not that many obvious places where that can be done but there are a few and um 
it, it's yeah I've, I've had some fun doing that but that was really specifically a technique i'd say i learned from america and american photographers so um since you mentioned the color of light tj let's let's talk a little bit about color because i've rung you up in the past to discuss blues and greens and printing and my various hang-ups around around color so i i I thought I'd just ask a very open-ended question there about, you know, give us some of your ideas around around colours and greens and blues and, and all of the the thoughts you have on them. So, uh, yeah, it's a really in- interesting, very tricky one. Uh, so for me, uh, di- digital photography and film photography do part ways here slightly. Um, I used to love shooting almost anything with my film camera and transparency film, and I'd I'd accept the colour pretty much as it were as it as a film produced it and didn't really think that much. Well, I did think about it, but I, I didn't realize I had much control over it. Oh, I didn't um, in practice. Whereas when I did transition to use digital, um, it took me about five years to realize that actually now I was completely responsible for the color. And then the more I got to realize that, the more I also got to realize that, especially with the, the earlier digital cameras, that the greens were just nothing like the greens I was seeing with my own eyes coming out of the raw files. They were way yellower and much more saturated. And although I think that's possibly improved a little bit in recent years, they're still, for me, the greens don't look like the greens I see with my own eyes. Now, I might be wrong. They might be, uh, but I don't like them anyway. So for me, I have typically not always, but typically I have a kind of green fix. Uh, and I don't use a preset, but I have a, a in general terms, um, if there's a lot of green in a landscape photo, uh, then I'll always edit it um, separately as a hue. So the hue will be usually cooled off. So I'd say back away from the yellow towards something you know more aqua, um, if we use Adobe's language in Lightroom. Um, and I will typically then also desaturate that green globally, not always, but usually globally, um, and quite often darken it, although occasionally I'll lighten. So, you know, luminance will usually go down a little bit. I don't know if this is sounding familiar. I'm sure a few people will be nodding and some people are thinking, what's wrong with him? Um, but it's, it's just that to me, the greens just are so eye-poppingly bright in a, a lot of digital photography, they're just plain distracting. That's not how I see green. And I'm not saying that I'm right, but obviously for my eyes, I'm right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, um, I feel I feel the same way. And one of the interesting things was, you know, independently, I was kind of doing a similar thing. I mean, particularly with desaturation, but also with a slight hue shift to, to get away from mm-hmm. that yellow, because um, those yellow greens can, can be a bit overpowering. And I've always kind of wondered why that was, whether it is a perception difference. You know, we just think we're seeing less saturated greens or if it's actually a, a real difference and if it's to do with the you know bioarray having two green pixels and only one red and one blue or yeah i have no idea really you know you, sorry I'll, I'll jump in again matt um there because i can see you're i'm sure you've got a, a view on this too but i i guess maybe that the brits in particular have an issue with green because there's such a lot of it in our landscape um whereas you can avoid it a lot of the time or at least you're not confronted by it in quite the same way. Um, so uh, I think the Bayer array um, is 
could be. I mean, I haven't spoken to a colour scientist about this, but I do think that the two green photocytes to each red and blue one is at least partially responsible um, for the excess greens. Um, and uh, and I've never heard anybody contradict that who was on the colour side. Um, maybe there'll come a time when we have a, you know, a, a more sophisticated way of interpreting the colour. But one thing I've noticed is that is that the phones do not produce the same problematic. So, you know, we, we, we take snaps with our phones and very often the greens look quite natural. So it's as if they've been very cleverly processed. So on the face of it, it looks like the engineers at Apple and Samsung, etc., cetera, um, are of much the same mind that the greens are too strong. Um, also, I think that other colours often get lost against that very bright green and and by the way blue i find can be too strong as well and and sometimes too cyan so i'll often back that off a little bit um sometimes i take a slight hue shift towards magenta that might be because of my fuji chrome biases from the past possibly but i genuinely try to try to have blues that look like the blues that i believe were there or that i remember um and and I often desaturate by 10%, let's say, for, for blues. But the, it's never a formula. It's always based on what looks right to me uh, for an individual picture. And finally, that often means that in, in a sort of counterpoint, that oranges and reds might get a little boost to bring them forward a bit as well. I don't want them to look unnatural, but just so that they, they're able to to hold their own more in the photograph. They're just sense. generally sexier colours, oranges and reds, let's be honest. They're, they're what everyone well, you, wants. You, you said you're young, I'm not. I can't, I can't use a word like that any longer. It's outside my uh, <laughs> permission zone. Yeah. <laughs> well, s speaking of colour, you know, one thing that I've noticed over the years is that it, there seems to be kind of a, a specific aesthetic that UK photographers have in comparison to United States-based photographers. And I've always wondered if that was more just because of the subjects that we have here, or if it's, or if it's more like a preference towards uh, less saturated colors in the United Kingdom. I've noticed a lot of UK photographers, their photos tend to be you know, just less colorful in general, and I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. I, I do have lots of thoughts about it, um, and I've actually had to write about it recently because uh, I, I got asked I got asked a similar question, um, and I, I do feel that there's a um, there's a there's a great danger that our cultural prejudices could be aired here because I do know there are some European and British photographers who think American photography is a bit shouty, Matt. So, which is very unfair um, because actually the the main difference is the landscape itself in my humble opinion you know the american landscape is very rich in color there's all sorts of geo geophysical reasons why that's true but the colorado plateau which you know is such a kind of uh, you know yosemite aside the colorado plateau is that when we think when we british and Amer and european photographers think of america we we think of utah and arizona and colorado and um you know uh, and so on and um uh, I, I new mexico uh, and what incredible landscapes they are now very very rich in color i mean colorado um 
sedimentary rock layers in the Grand Canyon. I mean, this absolutely astounding. And they, you find numerous canyons equally beautiful, just a little bit smaller elsewhere. Um, and those reds and oranges are, uh, are just as seductive for us. But but clearly, with a, it does create a different kind of color language, I think. Um, and perhaps for Americans, there's a there's a feeling that that brightness and brilliance is something that you know is, is almost like patriotic duty um whereas um <laughs> I, I think europeans and brits are, are are probably more um culturally say, uh, say classy more, joe just say classy uh you you can say that alex <laughs> i i i wouldn't I, i'm too pro-american i just i can't ways. believe this uh, i feel like you've completely sold us out here the reason that American landscape <laughs> photography is more colourful is because the landscape is more colourful. Oh, he's right. <laughs> so, um, so here's here's one thing I will say is if you have been with me this morning uh, on on our modest moorland uh, behind the village and seen the sunrise, then it, you'd you, you know, Alex, you you make your point very well. Actually, it was phenomenally bright, brilliant pinks and oranges and um, extraordinary azure blues. So, you know, clearly we have our very colourful moments as well. And often the colour of light is the colour of light. I think geologically the Colorado Plateau is actually a very bright and richly coloured environment. Whereas you could argue, but, but you know, here's the thing. So one of the reasons I love Scotland as much as I do is that in the autumn, the colours there are, are rich, richer than anywhere else I think in the UK. And the main reason for that is it's so flipping wet. Uh, they're very saturated and very damp and, the, and in central Scotland where where the woodland the big woods the big trees are um, mixture of, of coniferous and, and broadleaf um, the colors are really astonishingly beautiful and, and rich and vivid and everybody loves that there's nothing wrong with it um, but overall I think that there's a kind of culture in the UK of and and in Europe as well of of, of a kind of love of subtlety and um and and not i mean i i yeah i really don't know how to express it but especially scandinavian you think of scandinavian photographers they tend to be very very low-key in terms of the way they use color very knocked back very often um not to say that they don't, don't use color but um you often see these in very monochromatic images and and norway and sweden can you know, it's they're very wintry countries and long winters with a lot of snow and ice and uh, dark rocks, fascinating contrast. The mountains are often covered in, in snow and ice. And I guess, honestly, I think it's just part of the uh, of the visual language of being uh, a Northern European in a way. I love it. What do you think, Alex? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think that's, that's more or less it. I think it's sort of like a learned aesthetic to a certain degree. I mean, I, I was just thinking, can I think of any British painters who have a contrasty, colourful style and, and all the ones that come to mind have relatively muted, often very coherent colour palettes? They're not painting dramatic sunsets or anything like that. And then, of course, the States has the Hudson River School, which kind of... Uh, you know, you could almost say that that's the the footprint of, um, or sorry, the the basis of of this visual style to a degree. This sort of backlit into the sunset, dramatic, um, 
effects and and I've always wondered you know what the influence of uh, of photographers like Galen Rowell might have been on on American landscape photography and and I think patriotism does come into play would be my speculation because certainly the way Americans seem to regard their own national parks is with with a great deal of pride and I think the visual hallmark of the national parks is these grand scenics in in spectacular light to to really put across the wonder of these places and I, I don't think we have that in the UK um, I, I think there's relatively le- little recognition of how wonderful our landscape is amongst the general public and you know there's a general reticence to display that wonder on on your wall if you like um yeah i mean there's, there's just some very very stark differences there going on that's for sure i i, I mm-hmm. you know personally I, I just i'm delighted you mentioned the hudson river school because it's a it's an area of um of, as a, as a, a kind of school of painting which i've been really fascinated by and i've got two or three books on um and and i i have all sorts of uh, of thought about it, not least of which is that that some of the Hudson River School painters were influenced by by pioneer photographers. Did you know that? Yeah. I didn't. Carlton Watkins, <laughs> to, to name but one, and and actually, Carl, uh, so oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the um, I'm really poor on names. Uh, Albert von Bierstadt, uh, he he actually used Watkins's compositions as a guide for his great pictures of Yosemite. So, you know, he, he essentially were, was using Watkins's sense of composition as a, as a kind of template for his own, for his own. So Watkins had effectively acted as a scout um, for him. And in, in many ways, I, I think that, well, Watkins is, to me, is a great forgotten hero of American photography, actually. Um, and, and which is really, really sad, because I think he's such a, a kind of, extraordinary unique cultural figure um and and he did influence other members of the of the hudson river school as well and by the way the hudson river school which is i mean so those painters are fantastic painters you know thomas morans and um uh, you know um, von bierstadt and and um is it uh cole thomas cole they're just the three that immediately spring to mind brilliant brilliant technicians amazing visionary artists whose work was incredibly unpopular when i was an art student by the way um but who, who is they're coming back into style into fashion more now i think but i they all all of those three and most of them are of european descent and i have this theory that part of their um of, of the of the kind of what you might call the flamboyance of their style is because they're trying to prove to their European cousins that America is better than Europe <laughs> and and there is a there's actually the, 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 the school of the sublime because that's what it is of sublime painting is a kind of arms race culturally which declares to Europe that our world is our new world is bigger and better and more colorful than yours the old world so so which is better joe europe or america <laughs> yeah <laughs> i couldn't possibly say well it is interesting though because um you know i've had a lot of contemporary landscape photographers as guests on the show that have that more fantastical style like ryan dyer and mark adamus and 
the list goes on, and they've all referenced the Hudson and the River School as being an influence on their on their photography. So I think it yeah it it makes sense. Well, it does, and and you know what I mean. I I think that that it should be not not that you know uh, it, it's anything to do with me, but I I kind of feel that uh, that having a good knowledge of your predecessors in in the visual arts is really important to understand that you know you're not the first person to do that none of us are you know we're always we're always building on previous uh uses of uh, you know visual ideas and, and and languages and the hudson river school painters are absolutely amazing we might have a disagree about with them about some things philosophical and religious and so forth but what we can feel is inspired by their love of nature uh, and their uh, their celebration of of the beauty of of the world, which I mean is you know really really evident in in their work. Um, and I you know I use that perhaps trying to be quite provocative about the sort of you know new world's better than the old world, but I, I think there is genuinely there's always been that, that kind of um, uh, rivalry uh, culturally uh, between these you know across the Atlantic. Um, and and in many ways, I I feel it myself when I when I'm in the states and I, I when I was there last um, went to Yosemite did a workshop with with David and we visited Charlie Kramer afterwards and the three of us went to um, went to Kings Canyon and Sequoia for a few days just to you know have a bit of fun with our cameras and uh, and I went up onto one of the high passes above Kings Canyon and and. We stood there and looked to the north and to the south, and apart from the road we were standing on, you could see absolutely nothing but wilderness in the Sierra Nevada. And I, I honestly, I can't think of anywhere in Europe where I could be uh, in the high Alps, let's say, or you know maybe the Carpathians or somewhere like that, or the Pyrenees, any any big mountain range where you could look around you and you wouldn't see something that reminded you that you were in an occupied landscape because everywhere in Europe is occupied. And, you know, you, it's not that it's not beautiful. It, it is many parts of it, but the wildness of the US remains a kind of dream for many of us of uh, European descent. Um, to be able to go to and see nature without it having been Half ruined. I should say, of course, a lot of the Sierra has been ruined, and you know, has been well, not ruined, but it's been logged. But there are these preserved areas that remain be- just incredibly beautiful and amazing, and and are are really a um, you know the, an, an inheritance for the planet, and they should be, in my humble opinion, should be preserved forever. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, the United States has probably the most diverse. Um, subject matter in terms of the landscape but it also has probably just the most sheer amount of it that you can access and be in the wilderness like you're just describing and I think that also plays a role in why we see American photographers sometimes dominating competitions and things like that because there's just more opportunity to make amazing photographs here 
I also think that there's a lot of little things in the American landscape where they just have a slightly better, slightly more perfect version of what we might get in Europe. I mean, when I see all these Aspen images and like every leaf is just absolutely flawless and symmetrical and un unmarked and you you know the equivalent birch leaf is sort of half rotting away on one side and you're like so you have to step back to just like make a general impression of the yellow color but actually there's a green bit stuck up there but never mind you know and the, the aspens are just on fire this whole wall of color and perfection um and all these leaf abstracts leaves floating on ponds and what have you and they're just every leaf is flawless and <laughs> yeah <laughs> lots of that kind of stuff or white sands you know there's just flawless gypsum sand everywhere just uh, crazy sorry yeah. <laughs> you should be <laughs> not fair yeah. no I mean, that, that's actually just I, I know that this is going on but one last thing at least or at least from my point of view i wanted to mention you you actually did mention it very early doors alex and it was about perfection mm. Um, and I, I just wanted to make the point that for me, landscape photography is not about perfection. Um, I actually don't think that the art, it, it, it would be a kind of, it's almost like a, uh, it, it's, it's not the right idea. Um, I genuinely think that life is, is life is rich and complex and fascinating, but it isn't perfect. And so trying to create or present a world that looks perfect to me doesn't connect with me at all um, and that's one of the reasons that perhaps I, I'm not so keen on that kind of fantasy style of, of landscape photography that you were talking about earlier Matt. Yeah that's actually one of the most profound ideas I took away from our from our hike together Joe because you you basically said that you deliberately embrace imperfection because it, it gives authenticity to the landscape and I think that's such an important idea because I I think that that clean, simplistic, quote, perfect images can be visually really satisfying, but they can also end up feeling quite sterile and impersonal um, and, and actually dissociated from the subject matter. Yeah, so I've actually spoken to a few photographers privately about this, um, sometimes complimenting them on the flaws that they've included effectively and, and other times asking why they felt they needed to remove flaws that I that I you were there because and, and that's been an interesting part of our competition actually hasn't it Matt um seeing you know some people did break our our cloning rules often in ways that didn't really didn't seem to matter and it seems to be some sort of understanding of of the importance of perfection and that everything should be this this idealized view that I, I don't know it seems to have gone a little bit too far maybe it was particularly interesting hearing some of the judges talk about it in terms of like pointing out flaws in images and and it's like oh with that thing over there if that wasn't in the frame it would be a better image and it's like yeah but that would that would not be a represented a representation of what they actually experienced and so i think there has been a huge shift towards perfecting photographs um especially over the last decade and um, I, I, I appreciate it when I see people actually keep imperfections in images and make them work and, you know, use it to their advantage. You know, I think Hans Strand does a pretty good job of that. He, you know, he's, he has stuff shooting out in the corners. Most people would, you know, clone that stuff out or whatever. And it actually helps his composition somehow, you know. So 
I think I say yeah, imperfect. Yeah, in, there's beauty in imperfection. I, I just I just don't see the the problem with it. So I mean, look at Paul Wakefield's photographs, for example, and you know he Paul would never. I'm certain he would never try to get rid of something because it you know wasn't uh, you know didn't. I don't know it, if it's in the picture. It's in the picture. It's and that's part. I think, I think one of the drivers for it is is this you know just gradual transition into these smaller scenes and uh, and more minimal images though because that does then expose. I mean, like like you were saying earlier, you know, you, you use complexity to hide flaws to a certain degree, and it's that balance, isn't it? It's it's a tricky balance to find because there are certainly some scenes. You know, if you shot a, I don't know a snow scene and it's just the curve of the edge of a, a loch or something to make a beautiful shape and then there was just some like brown leaf on top of the snow it would be a totally unacceptable flaw to most people so there has to be this balance but it's, it's a tricky one to find it is and and i you know i realize that you, you we all probably contradict ourselves from time to time you know that I've, I've been known to remove the odd leaf here and there and you know, so, and so on. But I, I'm a great believer in you photographing, photograph what's there, um, and uh, you know, it's it, it. And if you, if you don't like it, then don't photograph it, really. Um, but I, I or or it, so I mean, ju just finally on that point, um, best example I think of all is is the, the kind of telegraph pole conundrum, which we have a lot of in the UK. Um, and for me, if there's telegraph poles in the picture, there are telegraph poles in the picture. That's it. You don't take them out. You could do, but you don't because they're there. And and actually, in some ways, you know, they tell you more about the landscape, that the reality of that landscape. It's so much a part of it. We have to accept it. So I just shot pictures this morning, which have got uh, wind turbines in the far distance. Now they're there. They don't dominate the picture, so as far as I'm concerned, they're incidental, and that and as incident, they work, and I've got no problem with them. Yeah, and you're probably not party to the sort of I don't know if it's competition or, but but social media has this funny effect, doesn't it? That I think if people start removing the imperfections, then other people start removing the imperfections, and then you get a new baseline for what perfect is, and then it needs to be more and more perfect. And I think that's the sort of gradual transition that we've seen. And it would actually be nice if people just left these flaws in and just said, ah, oh, I don't care about the you know pylons or whatever on the horizon. I th yeah. And then I think it would actually give photographers a lot more freedom um, uh, with how they approach subjects. Agreed. I agree. Well, I think I've exhausted all of my questions. Did you have any more, Alex? I think we've we've got through them all pretty much. It's been uh, been really interesting and, gr and great to pick your pick your brain, Joe. I I hope to do that more and more in the future, until I'm some sort of clone of your own. <laughs> <laughs> well, I <hope> not. <laughs> so I can repeat your ideas as my own. <laughs> well, I I just want to say thank you, Joe, for coming on the show. It's been a real honor. I've been wanting to have you as a guest for a long time and I'm really thankful to Alex to help help make that happen as well. It was my pleasure Matt, I really enjoyed it and uh, thank you both for your insightful questions and, and for uh, giving me a great deal more respect than I deserve I'm sure. <laughs> no, 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 awesome. <laughs> Well, thank you to both Joe and Alex for the amazing conversation and for finally settling the question of whether or not the United States is better than the United Kingdom. I'm joking, of course, but that was a great conversation, so thank you both. 
speaking of great conversations, I'd love to have you join us on Nature Photographers Network, where we engage in daily conversations to improve people's photography. I've seen a huge uptick in membership and activity there, and I'd encourage you to join us as well. It's been great offering critique on your photos there and to see how others interpret the landscape. I think it's a great place to level up your landscape photography. For just $49 per year, you can join in on the conversations. Just head over to npn.link forward slash fstop and be sure to use the code fstop10 for your 10% off discount. You can also find all of this in the episode show notes. We will see you there. Okay, well, that is all for now. Thank you all for your support. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. We'll see you next week.